Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number three, Numbers chapters two and three. We were finishing up Numbers chapter one last week when we ran out of time. And the subject was the tribe of Levi, the Levites, who were assigned to become the priestly tribe of Israel who would be set apart from this already set apart nation of Israel for this especially holy task. Yet to understand how Levi was set apart is just as critical as the fact that they were set apart. Now, historically and scripturally, the Levites were adopted away from Israel, no longer to be even counted as Israelites. Okay. They were adopted away in mass from Israel by God. Now, this very much corresponds to the pattern of an earlier surprise adoption that we studied back in Genesis 48. Let's review that for just a minute or two. Open your Bibles to Genesis 48. If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 55. Genesis 48. And we're going to just read the first six verses. It says this. A while later, someone told Yosef, Joseph, that his father was ill. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Yaakov, Jacob, was told, Here comes your son, Yosef. And Israel gathered his strength, and he sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, saying to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make of you a group of peoples and I will give this land to your descendants to possess forever. Now, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be as much mine as Reuben and Simeon are. The children born to you after them can be yours. But for purposes of inheritance, they're to be counted with their older brothers. Now here, for some reason that we're not told, Jacob, called Israel, adopts Joseph's two sons away from Joseph. And of course, recall that Joseph was Jacob's most favorite son. Now Jacob makes Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two sons, his own sons. In other words, these two grandchildren of his have had their status changed to being Jacob's sons. Now, it's a very strange thing indeed, and we're just left to ponder the meaning of it. But here in Numbers, we find Jehovah do precisely the same thing to Israel. He adopts away from Israel the entire tribe of Levi to be his own special servants. So get the picture. Ephraim and Manasseh should have just been clans from the tribe of Joseph. Okay? Instead, because they were adopted, 
they are now elevated from just being potential clans into the status of being their own tribes. Two tribes of Jacob, two tribes of Israel. Levi, on the other hand, isn't even to be counted as a tribe of Israel any longer. Rather, it's been removed as a tribe of Israel, and now it's kind of become like the tribe of God, so to speak. Now, it's important in deciphering all that happens from here forward in the Bible that we recognize and understand the impact of this separateness of Levi from Israel. And here we get an all-important spiritual principle that completely flies in the face of the modern world. A principle that if most understood it today, frankly, it would be denounced as the most intolerant, most arrogant position a person might ever harbor. And it's this, that God separates his servants away from everyone else. He elevates them. He has higher expectations of them and he gives them special attention. Now, they're different. It's Jehovah who gives them this different status. It's not come because of, uh, of anything they've done to merit such favor, but simply because God declared it. His servants, Levi, the tribe of Levi, are so special, they're not even to be counted as among everyone else of this set-apart nation of Israel. This is all connected to that first, most important God principle I ever taught you a long time ago. God divides, he elects, and he separates. He makes distinctions. This is not a God who says, we're just all one big happy family. He does not view everybody the same, is not tolerant or politically correct in order to suit our ever-changing vanities and preferences. Are you a true believer and disciple of Yeshua? Then that hit song from so many years ago, We Are the World, doesn't apply to you. You, by the blood of Jesus, have been separated away from all other humans. The Lord has given you elevated status and favor. You are the modern spiritual equivalents, equivalents of the Levites. No, I didn't say you've become a physical Levite. Now, what did you ever do to merit this great favor? Nothing. You simply accepted the reality of what Yeshua HaMashiach did for you. Therefore, my brethren, you see, you're not to be counted as among the others on this planet. You're not to behave as others on this planet. In fact, you've been assigned the duty as the guardians of God's holiness here on earth. You going to accept that assignment? You are God's earthly tabernacle. And some mysterious element of his holiness that we call the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, actually dwells in you. 
Everywhere you are, He is. Everything you experience, you subject Him to and cause Him to react accordingly. Therefore, as God's servant, you're not to join yourself willingly to anyone or anything who's not also set apart for God. And you're certainly not to allow anyone or anything who's not set apart for Jehovah to join themselves to you if you have any control over the matter. See, the Levites were set apart for holiness. Now you're set apart for holiness. Period. End. That's the deal. And your only real choice, if you don't accept this role and duty, is to renounce your allegiance to Jesus. Now, just as the Levites didn't go off and live entirely separately from the Israelites, we're not to live entirely separately from the world. Yet the Levites were given their own cities among the other tribes of Israel so that they could be near, they could serve their divine function in helping to shepherd Israel and in helping to keep Israel in proper relationship with God. In fact, the Levites not only served God directly at the tabernacle via officiating these required sacrifices and other rituals, they served him indirectly by serving Israel. <clears throat> now, as believers, we are to serve God directly. But as Jesus said, we're also to serve him indirectly. Now, how do we do that? Well, Matthew twenty-five thirty-seven tells us how. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did these, did, uh, did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. See, we serve him by serving others, especially our brothers and sisters in the faith, at his direction. And that par the, the parallels between the Levites and we disciples of Yeshua, whether Jew or Gentile, are so thorough and far-reaching that we can't ignore them and then claim to have any real knowledge of membership in the kingdom of God. So as we continue our study of Torah, pay very close attention to what God expected of the Levites. Most of those principles apply to you. Physically, who were Jesus' brothers? The Jews, the Jewish people. Spiritually, of course, it was all who trusted in him. You see, that's one of the reasons the Torah class exists. We have a duty to serve him indirectly by helping his brethren. 
especially his brethren that also trust him as Messiah. And when we do that especially, we serve him in a very special way. So God has given us a great opportunity here to do this. Now I'm not going to go into detail for the moment, but let me tell you one of the reasons that Jehovah separated the Levites from everyone else on this earth and made them his own. It has to do with the principle that all firstborns automatically belong to him. God had set down a principle in Exodus that the lives of the firstborns of everything belong to him. When he took the lives of all those people and livestock in Egypt, who did he kill? Firstborn. Only the firstborn. He was simply taking what was already his. The firstborn. But now with the taking of the Levites away from their biological father, Jacob, away from their brothers, the Lord was substituting the Levites as a ransom. And a ransom is a substitutionary price that must be paid for all the firstborn of all the other tribes of Israel. Instead of God owning the lives now of all the firstborn of Israel, he's exchanged them for the Levites. Now just accept that for a moment, even though I've not fully explained it. In the next few weeks, we're going to look at this principle in much greater depth. Now let me finish out that thought with another parallel between the Levites and believers. It was part of the job of the Levites to protect God's holiness from encroachers. Because if an unauthorized person, someone God deemed as unfit, encroached on God's holiness, the entire community would feel his wrath. And who were deemed as the unfit to come near? All whom God did not deem as holy. See, the Levites in protecting God's holiness at the same time protected the common people of Israel from God's wrath by keeping those who were not sufficiently holy away from him. If the non-holy were able to get near God's holiness, then his wrath would fall upon the entire community in divine retribution. Likewise, one of the purposes of believers is to delay God's wrath upon the unholy, upon the world. The day will come when all believers are going to be whisked away from this planet in an event evangelicals call the rapture. And then God's wrath will pour out on this planet. It is a major part of your purpose as a walking, talking, living, breathing tabernacle. Tabernacle of God. To protect this world from God's wrath by protecting God's holiness from uncleanness and unholiness of this world.
As long as we're here, He's here. When we're gone, He's gone. Now, if that responsibility doesn't make your knees quake and your mouths go dry, then you either don't believe me or you just don't get it. All that stood between the total annihilation of Israel and God was the Levites. All that stands today between the total annihilation of the world and God is you. Now, I don't want to leave this too quickly. Let me explain something to you. The Levites weren't like pacifist monks okay, who, who would plead with an encroacher to stay back and then if the encroacher paid no heed, the Levites would behave like Gandhi or a silent sacrificial lamb. They just throw their bodies in front of them. Now, the Levites were armed and dangerous. They immediately killed anyone who encroached too near the holy grounds. Now, see, this wasn't about justice as we think of it. Sympathy was irrelevant. Simple error brought death as quick as stubborn determination and malicious intent. Remember in Genesis the word picture of the cherubim with the flaming sword that guarded the path to the entrance to the Garden of Eden? And that any unauthorized person foolish enough to venture too close was immediately destroyed by those cherubim. The Levites were to behave as those cherubim behaved. The Levites didn't ask permission to kill the trespasser. They were expected to do it without hesitation. They didn't arrest an encroacher and then take him to the priest for a hearing. The Levite was obligated to kill that person on the spot or lose their own life for not doing so. God's holiness is that serious of a matter. God indeed places high value on human life, but let me tell you, he places the ultimate value on his own holiness. And the scriptures make it clear that he'll sacrifice all human life to maintain his holiness if that's what's necessary. As believers, we need to do our job just as the Levites did theirs and it was for the benefit of both the worshiper and the pagan. But this job can't be done while we sit on the sidelines. Now obviously, we're not in the business of running around killing unholy people. It's a hope not. But as guardians of God's holiness, we are to be active and watchful and strike at the true enemy, Satan, whenever he comes too near. And we do this by standing on God's word and by following him no matter the cost. This must never be a frivolous or rash action on our part, nor something we act upon without much prayer and much good counsel. Let's move on to Numbers chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 2. Page 146 of your complete Jewish Bible. I don't know.
Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, The people of Israel are to set up camp by clans. Each man with his own banner under his clan symbol, they're to camp around the tent of meeting, but at a distance. Those camping on the east side towards the sunrise are to be under the banner of the camp of Judah. They're to camp according to companies. By tribe and leader, they are as follows. Judah, Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, 74,600 of them. Yissachar, Netanel, the son of Tzuar, 54,400. Zebulun, Eliaf, the son of Halon, 57,400 for a total of 186,400. This group is to set out first. Those camping on the south are to be under the banner of the camp of Reuven, Reuben. They're to camp according to companies. By tribe and by leader, they are as follows. Reuven, Elitzur, the son of Shedeur, rather. 46,500. Shimon, Shlemu'iel, the son of Tzur Shaddai, 59,300. God, El Yasaf, the son of Reuel, 45,650 for a total of 151,450. This group is to set out second. Then the tent of meeting with the camp of the Levites will set out with the other camps in front and behind. They will go in the same order as their camps are set up. Each man will go forward in his position under his banner. Those camping on the west are to be under the banner of the camp of Ephraim. They are to camp according to companies. By tribe and leader, they are as follows. Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amahud, 40,500. Manasseh, Gamliel, the son of Padatsur, 32,200. Benjamin, Avidan, the son of Gedoni, 35,400 for a total of 108,100. Now this group is to set out third. Those camping on the north are to be under the banner of the camp of Dan. They're to camp according to companies by tribe and leader. They are as follows. Dan, Akietzer, the son of Amishadai, 62,700. Hashir, Pagiel, the son of Ochran, 41,500. Naphtali, Achira, the son of Enan, 53,400 for a total of 157,600. This group is to set out last with their banners. These are the ones counted from the people of Israel by clans. The total number recorded in the camps, company by company, was 603,550. But, as Adonai ordered Moses, the Levites were not counted with the rest of Israel. The people of Israel did everything Adonai had ordered Moshe. They set up camp under their banners and they set out each according to his family and his clan. Okay, the organizing of the nation of Israel for the coming holy war is what's continuing here. And the Israelites are given an instruction on how they're to set up camp and deploy when they're at rest. Let's remember 
that out in the wilderness, the Israelites didn't move all that often. Okay? They stayed in one location for many months at a time, years in some cases, before they were led by the Shekinah of the fire cloud to, to move again. So when they set up an encampment, it wasn't for a weekend of recreational tent camping. Rather than have some type of disorganized mess, it was necessary to have order. And, and the claimed enormity of two to three million people meant that the organization and the structure had to be even more precise and codified than if this were just a few people. Not surprisingly, a fairly rigid hierarchy is laid out for the Israelites. Now, of utmost importance is that they were to set up this vast tent village around the holy sanctuary. A kind of square formation would be set up and it would be set up with each division consisting of three tribes assigned to a particular place. And that place was designated by compass direction, east, west, north, south. Why a square? Well, why also put the wilderness tabernacle at the center? Well, despite this obvious reasons that by means of the people surrounding the tabernacle it was better protected, we also find that historically, Ramses II used this exact formation in his battle campaigns. The royal tent of Pharaoh was placed in the protected middle and certain battalions were assigned a kind of pecking order uh, around the tent. These Israelites, who had spent generations in Egypt, were very familiar with this method of battle array. I only bring this up to make the point that generally speaking, God deals with us using manners and ways that we're familiar with in our culture. Most of the rituals that God gave to Israel and the form of the laws and the ordinances were presented, even the use of the menorah, the burnt offerings, the burning incense, circumcision, so on. These all had some parallel already long existent in these Middle Eastern societies. We mustn't think that Jehovah kept up some kind of steady barrage of instructing the Israelites about things and ways that were completely foreign to them and, and, and totally new to the world. No. Okay. There was no need for this. Okay. Centuries of civil customs had been developed and God used many of those imperfect customs for his purposes. For Israel, some of the customs he changed, some of them he outlawed, and some he gave profoundly different meaning. The point is that most of what Israel did, they did it because it was already well known to them. Now that said, over the centuries of following God's ways and better understanding God's purposes for them, Israel's customs did begin to look very different from other folks. Their ways became stranger and stranger to the rest of the world, and indeed, that does kind of appear to be God's plan for his people. 
we as Yeshua's disciples are to operate the same way. When we get redeemed, saved, you know, we still live in houses. We wake up in the morning, we go to jobs. We put on shoes and socks and we wear clothes. We drive cars. We read newspapers. The speed limits remain the same after we're saved. We still have to pay our taxes. We vote. We continue using electricity. We eat with a knife and a fork. We ever did. We read books. And usually, we'll make our kingdom journey with Yehovah inside the, 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 the same culture we were familiar with before we ever submitted to him. And God will also likely send us to do his bidding inside the same society we knew before we were redeemed. When we're first redeemed, usually all the change in us is internal. It's over time, it's my, like my life, pretty long periods of time, that the internal changes finally begin to show up externally. So eventually, we start looking pretty strange to the world. And the world starts looking pretty strange to us. Or we start appearing to the world as a threat to their hopes and their aspirations as we move from being perceived as merely crazy or obnoxious to being an enemy. Now that's how it was for Israel then. And if you don't recognize it, that's how it is for you right now. Verse 2 makes it explicit that the twelve tribes were to camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. It was too dangerous to be too near to the tabernacle. And using common phrases of that day, it next says that each Israelite was to camp with his unit. That is, within his battle group, not with the badly mistranslated with his standard, as we usually see it. So each Israelite is to camp with the battle unit he belongs to, as determined by the census that was taken, and above his unit is to fly a banner, representing his unit. Now this banner was some kind of colored cloth, with the insignia of the group emblazoned upon it. Most of the Targums and the Talmud agree that each of these twelve tribes had a distinctive banner incorporating a specific color and that the color of each banner coincided with one of those twelve semi-precious stones that adorned the high priest's breastplate. Now just what that insignia amounted to that was on each banner is anybody's guess. Nothing's been preserved that tells us that with any certainty at all. So whatever set of symbols for each tribe of Israel that you might see in a book, that's guesswork and it's tradition. Now the order of the tribes, or more literally as they're called here, troops, is that of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, who encamps together as a unit on the east side, the front side, of, uh, of the tabernacle. This is the prime position of honor. 
Okay. Judah is the leader of this three-tribe division. Judah obtained this right to lead because Judah had replaced Reuben, who was the natural firstborn of Jacob, due to an indiscretion by Jacob against, or rather, uh, by Reuben against Jacob. Reuben, although he no longer holds the preeminent position now as firstborn and therefore supreme leader of Israel, still is a leader. And apparently he's second in command to Judah. So he's instructed to camp in the next most prestigious area that is the south side of the tabernacle. Now, let me say here, by the way, that when I call a tribe by name and say he, that's not to suggest that the man Reuben was still living. He had died long, long ago. And as we saw in the record of the census, in fact, there was a fellow named Elisur who currently was the head of the Reuben tribe. The only thing that remained of the original sons of Jacob by this late date was their descendants and their, their names that continued on as names of the tribes that they had fathered. So the leader of the tribe of Judah held the highest status and the leader of the tribe of Reuben, the second highest status, Reuben camped with Simeon and Gad, and together they formed the three divisions to the south. Next to the west was Ephraim as the head of its division, and it camped together along with Manasseh and Benjamin. And lastly, in the least prestigious position, the north, was the division led by Dan. And those with him were Asher and Naphtali. Now, these camping positions, ranged according to compass directions, also dictated marching order. Those who marched in the lead of the column, those who followed next, and so on down to who brought up the rear. The division of Judah would lead the column, followed by Reuben. Verse 17 tells us that after the division of Reuben, before the next division, which was Ephraim, the wilderness tabernacle was to be carried. In other words, the Levites carrying and protecting that all-important tent shrine were to be smack dab in the middle of the marching call. Bringing up the rear was the division of Dan. Now, can we ascertain... Just why certain groups, certain tribes rather, were designated to camp together in a particular group, a division. Yes, there is some rationale. There is a pattern to it. To the east were composed what is known as the Leah tribes. That's the biological mother of Judah and the other two tribes that he camped with. In other words, Leah was the mother of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. To the south, we find three more Leah tribes. However, there's a slight difference. The leader of the southern division, Reuben, was the biological son of Leah, just as Simeon was. But Gad was not a biological son of Leah. Rather, he was the son of Leah's handmaiden, Zilpah. However, by law... Zilpah, as a servant, was simply the surrogate mother for Leah, so Gad was counted as among the sons of Leah. Now, to the west were what's called the Rachel tribes. 
right, led by Ephraim. That is, all these were sons of Jacob, produced by his most loved wife, Rachel. Now, again, I have some explaining to do, because although Benjamin's biological mother was indeed Rachel, was Ephraim and Manasseh's biological mother Rachel? No. All right. So, why are they called the Rachel tribes? Because Rachel was the biological mother of Joseph. She was the biological grandparent of Ephraim and Manasseh. And as Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they were carrying, we're told, the authority of Joseph, something that had been ordained by that amazing cross-handed blessing of Genesis 48. By the way, we would think of it, biologically speaking, Ephraim and Manasseh were grandsons of Rachel, nonetheless due to the customs of that era. Benjamin was considered a son of Rachel, and in the cross-handed blessing, Jacob, Rachel's husband, had adopted Ephraim and Manasseh. That's how we come to this conclusion. Now, to the north, which represented the lowest spot in the pecking order, were the remaining three tribes led by Dan. Dan and Naphtali were sons of uh, Belah, Asher, the son of Zilpah, handmaidens. Now, what's important to see in all this, really, is that Judah's the lead tribe and therefore has the highest status. Dan has the lowest. And that regardless of what we may view as fair, tribalism is brutal. And its determination of rank and power, it's absolute. And it was no different with Israel. The only hope for a lower ranking tribe was to somehow become more powerful than a tribe of higher rank and to either absorb that higher tribe or simply become dominant over it. Keep this in mind as we watch the progress and development of, of Israel in the Old Testament Because this was the context by which the ebb and flow of power was determined. In fact, this is generally how tribal societies work to this day. And if you watch the news, this is exactly what the problem is in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's tribal wars and it's clan wars within the tribes. That's what you're witnessing. Now, one other piece of information that I think you'll find helpful and useful in understanding the Bible. East was the preeminent direction, just as the right side is the preeminent side. So to understand why the compass directions that the various divisions camped at denoted a kind of rank, we begin at the east. Now, picture yourself standing and facing east. Then you hold your right arm out to the right side. In what direction am I pointing? South. Then since east is rank number one, the immediate right is the south. That's rank number two. Now I turn and face the south. I hold out my right hand. Where am I pointing? West. Therefore, it's rank number three. One more turn to the right. I'm pointing north. Final rank. That's how it's... That's how it was determined. This same protocol is used throughout 
the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. So always begin with the east, work towards the right, and you'll understand the rank and order of compass directions, and that each of these directions also symbolize a level of power and authority. So let's move on to Numbers chapter 3. Open your Bibles again. We're going to read Numbers chapter 3. All of it. Page 147 of your complete Jewish Bible. These are the descendants of Aaron and Moses as of the day when Adonai spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. The names of the sons of Aharon are Nadav, the firstborn, Abihu, Elazar, and Ithamar. These were the names of the sons of Aharon, the, the, the Kohen, the priest, whom he anointed and ordained as Kohanim, priests. But Nadav and Avahu died in the presence of Adonai when they offered unauthorized fire before Adonai in the Sinai desert, and so they had no children. Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the presence of Aaron, their father. Now Adonai said to Moses, Summon the tribe of Levi and assign them to Aaron the Cohen so that they can help him. They are to carry out his duties and the duties of the whole community before the tent of meeting and performing the service of the tabernacle. They are to be in charge of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and to carry out all the duties of the people of Israel connected with the service of the tabernacle. Assign to the Levites, assign the Levites to Aaron and his sons. Their one responsibility in regard to the people of Israel is to serve him. You are to appoint Aaron and his sons to carry out the duties of priests. Anyone else who involves themselves to be put to death. And Adonai said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel in lieu of every firstborn male that is first from the womb from among the people of Israel. So the Levites are to be mine. All the firstborn males belong to me. Because on the day that I killed all the firstborn males in the land of Egypt, I separated for myself all the firstborn males of Israel, both human and animal. They're mine. I'm Adonai. So Adonai said to Moses in the Sinai Desert, take a census of the tribe of Levi by clans and by families. Count every male a month old and over. Moses counted them in the matter Adonai had said as he had been ordered. The names of the sons of Levi were Gershon, Chat, and Merari. The names of the son of Gershon were Lidni and Shimi. They fathered their respective clans. Likewise, the sons of Chat, Amram, Yitzar, Hivron, and Usiel, and the sons of Merari, Machli, and Mushi. These fathered the clans of the Levites. Now, Gershon fathered the clans of Libni and Shimi. These were the Gershon clans. Of them, 7,500 males a month old and over were counted. The Gershon clans were to camp behind the tabernacle towards the west. The chief of the Gershon clan was Elisaph, the son of Lael. 
In connection with the tent of meeting, the descendants of Gershon were to be in charge of the following. The tabernacle itself, its inner and outer coverings, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the curtains surrounding the courtyard, the screen for the entrance of the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle and the altar, all the fixtures and the ropes for these items and their maintenance. God fathered the clans of Amram, Yitzar, Hebron, and Uziel. These were the Kahat clans. Of them, 8,600 males, a month old and over, were counted. They were in charge of the holy place. The Kahat clans were to camp next to the tabernacle to the south. The chief of the Kahat clan was Elitzaphan, the son of Uziel. They were responsible for the ark, the table, the menorah, the altars, the utensils, the kohanim used when they're in service to the holy place, the curtain, everything involved with the maintenance of these things. Eleazar, the son of Aaron the Kohen, was first among the chiefs of the Levites and supervised those in charge of the holy place. Now Merari fathered the clans of Machli and Mushi, these were the Merari clans. Of them, 6,200 males a month old and over were counted. The chief of the Merari clan was Suriel, the son of Avich Ayil. They were to camp next to the tabernacle, but toward the north. The Merari clans were assigned the responsibility for the frames of the tabernacle along with its crossbars and posts and sockets and fittings, together with their maintenance, also the posts of the surrounding courtyard with their sockets and pegs and ropes. Now those who were to camp in front of the tabernacle on the east, in front of the tent of meeting towards the sunrise, were Moses, Aaron, and his sons who were in charge of the holy place. They carried out their responsibility on behalf of the people of Israel and anybody else who involved himself was to be put to death. The total number of Levites whom Moses and Aaron counted by their clans, all the males, a month old and over, was 22,000. Adonai said to Moses, register all the firstborn males of the people of Israel a month old and over and determine how many of them there are. Then you're to take the Levites for me, Adonai, in place of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, in place of all the firstborn of the cattle belonging to the people of Israel. Moses counted, as Adonai had ordered him, all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the total number of firstborn males registered, <coughs> pardon me, a month old and over of those who were counted was 22,273. Adonai said to Moses, Take the Levites in place of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites in place of their cattle. The Levites are to belong to me, Adonai. Since there were 273 more firstborn males from Israel than male Levites, in order to redeem them, you're to take five shekels for each of these, Give the redemption money for these extra people to Aaron and his sons. Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above, those redeemed by the Levites. The amount of money he took from the firstborn of the people of Israel was 
1,365 shekels using the sanctuary shekel. Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons in keeping with what Adonai had said, as Adonai had ordered Moses. Now this chapter revolves all around this census of the tribe of Levi. And it's important to understand that the location where this all took place is Mount Sinai up through verse 13. Then it switches to a time during their wilderness travels after they loaded up and left Mount Sinai. And that begins in verse 14. Okay. Biblically speaking, genealogy is always important. And so the first few verses of this chapter 3 serve to elaborate on the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, but mainly Aaron. Actually, other than the fact that Moses is Aaron's brother, none of the genealogy posted in this chapter applies directly to Moses. Now let me reiterate a principle They can get a little bit confusing, but it's essential to our understanding of the social structure of Israel. Okay? So it's worth repeating. Aaron and his family were but one of several major clans that composed the overall tribe of Levi. Now, even though there were several Levite clans, Jehovah assigned Aaron's clan with a holy status that was a notch above all the other clans within the tribe of Levi. Specifically, only members of Aaron's clan could be priests. All the other Levites were there to be servants and helpers to the priests. Or perhaps more accurately, servants to the priesthood. Priests were the only ones that could perform the rituals, conduct the ceremonies. The other Levite families had different duties. Things like guarding the tabernacle, carrying it around, filling the water basins, cleaning up those big messes, stoking the fires, playing music, singing psalms, so on. So somewhat like the Levites were removed for service to God from the regular family of Israel, the family of Aaron was removed from the family or the tribe of Levi for most special service to God. Now, as for the high priest, and there was only one high priest at a time, he was to come from only one specific son of Aaron, and that was Eleazar. So the tribe of Levi was removed from Israel for tabernacle service. The family of Aaron was removed from the Levites for priestly service. And from the family of Aaron, one specific son was to provide the ongoing line of high priests. What principle do we see operating here? Dividing, separating, electing. Over and over and over we watch this throughout the Bible. In verse 2, we get the names of Aaron's sons and a very sad reminder of the fate of two of them. 
The four sons were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Nadab was the firstborn of Aaron. He would, under normal circumstances, have been the next high priest after his father Aaron died. And Nadab would have been the one to produce the line from, one, from which all future high priests would have come. But Jehovah killed Nadab. And he also killed his brother Abihu in direct retaliation for their offering of strange or alien fire to the Lord. That is, they were performing their priestly duties, but ignored direct instructions about some ritual procedure. And so the Lord engulfed them in flames and burned them up right before their father Aaron's eyes. Since Aaron's firstborn, Nadav, was now dead, and his secondborn, Abihu, was also dead, then it fell to Eleazar to be the next in line to be the future father of the high priest's of Israel. Now further it makes it clear that Nadab and Abihu's bloodlines died with them because they had no sons at the time of their deaths. Their family trees were cut down and their lines were ended. Now for the next few verses beginning with verse 5 it defines the duties of the Levites that means the non-priests. And if you read this in English, it's kind of hazy as to exactly what it is they're supposed to do. Most texts say something to the effect, they shall perform duties, do the work of the tabernacle on behalf of the Israelites, etc., etc. In fact, the Hebrews make their duties very specific. In verse 7, what is usually translated as simply perform duties is in Hebrew, shamar mishmerit. And it means keep guard. So verse 7 ought to read, They, the Levites, shall keep guard for him and for the whole community before the tent of meeting. And as we discussed earlier, one of the primary assignments of the Levites were his guards of God's holiness and of his dwelling place. Later on in that same verse where most translations say doing the work of the tabernacle or something like that, the Hebrew used for doing the work is actually abad boda, And this actually means doing heavy work. So the first duties assigned to the Levites are to shamar mishmerit, keep guard, and then to abad boda, do the heavy work of the tabernacle. Verses 9 and 10 essentially put across the idea that the Levites are dedicated to do the blue-collar tasks associated with the tabernacle, that they're to follow the directions of the priests who all come from one clan. Now, verse 11 begins a fascinating divine instruction that is almost lost, frankly, to both Christianity and Judaism. Okay. This is an instruction that I stated to you Last week, told you earlier today, we'd move into it a little bit later, and we're about there. And the instruction takes place in verses 11 through 13. And man, is it important. It is that the Levites are to replace the firstborn of all the other tribes of Israel. That is, whereby God in some special way 
regarded all the firstborn males of all the tribes of Israel as special and set apart for him, a kind of ownership or a kind of adoption by God. Now, he said, he's going to take the Levites in total as a substitute for all the firstborns of Israel. That special status of Israelite firstborns as over and above firstborns of other nations came about in Exodus 11 when the firstborns of Israel were commemorated to God as a remembrance of the Passover salvation that they received. We're going to begin next week by discussing the replacement of the firstborn of Israel by the tribe of Levi. And believe me, it has everything to do with God's plan of salvation. Okay, we'll take that up next week.